0: Welcome to the podcast. Adobe, today we're going to talk about the Rat Pack and specifically about Frank Sinatra with Ingar Christiansen, the frontman for the Sinatra songbook a band out of Oslo, Norway. Are you a fan? Have you been a fan of Frank Sinatra or any of the Rat Pack music? Is that something that that has filtered into your playlist?
1: I wouldn't say that I'm a fan, as in I wouldn't go out seeking that music, but certainly Frank Sinatra's music is, is fascinating to listen to. Um, Sammy Davis Jr., I do appreciate good music, but I wouldn't have said that was music that I'm I'm, I'm not a connoisseur of, of that music. So this sure. is an interesting to... Me to to listen
0: to. Ingark clearly is a, is a huge fan, and I've been a fan as well. I had a really fun experience last summer. I was on a college tour with my daughter, who's a senior in high school here in the US, and we ended up 45 miles from Palm Springs. And so I said to my daughter, We're going to drive to Palm Springs. And we found Frank Sinatra's house in Palm Springs, California, and got to see the outside of the house. It's a house that you can actually rent uh, at Airbnb or VRBO, one of those online services. You can rent Frank Sinatra's house in Palm Springs and, and stay where he stayed. Uh, you know, for a night or two or a weekend, however much money you have to, to spend to rent the house. But it was fun to see and and fun to think about that era and the entertainers, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin Frank Sinatra, Liza Minnelli, that entertained the world at that point.
1: What I found really interesting, um, and you, you might have more insights to this, is how a 19-year-old Norwegian kid then Got into. I mean, of course, these these guys were world renowned; everybody knew who they were. But interesting that a 19-year-old kid in Norway would switch on into that kind of
0: music. It goes back a little bit to the conversation that we have had over the course of this podcast about music and how you find music and discover music. And we've talked about my son discovering jazz from around the world. I think I've always been very fascinated by the idea that that discovery could take place even back before the internet. And people around the world were discovering music from different places and, and uh, getting to enjoy music from different places. I never really understood how that worked. As a, as a kid growing up in a very small farming community in, in rural Minnesota, I never really understood how music traveled and got shared, but it certainly did. And, and for Ingar, seeing Frank and Liza and Sammy Davis Jr. on that night in Oslo was certainly life-changing for him.
1: Imagine, and he also described um, the way they did big bands in those days. Imagine a traveling band with 50 members and the noise. And um, so I can imagine it was a physically very, almost, um, I would imagine it was a, it was a, yeah, a physically life-altering experience. I mean, I think of concerts today, you know, how how concerts affect people today. I don't think you, you have the sort of, The kind of numbers you had, imagine 50 people as part of an orchestra coming to a small town Um, then. I would imagine, I I could understand certainly why that would have been something that fascinated him and then got him into the music at the time.
0: And we are going to have a special treat on this podcast today. Ingar has written some of his own music, and we're going to get to hear him perform some of his own music later in the podcast. Let's listen to Ingar talk about his love of Frank Sinatra and his love of music. And, and a little later on, we'll even play a song.
1: Welcome to the Key and the Kite podcast. I'm Adobe Oniwinde, and as we record this episode, I'm in Georgetown, Washington, DC, and Carter is in Denver, Colorado. In today's conversation, we'll meet Inga Christensen, who in 1989 attended the ultimate event in Oslo, a concert featuring Liza Minnelli, Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra. He knew instantly that he wanted to be a part of the crooning experience one way or another. In the year 2000, he formed his own sextet, the Sinatra Songbook. It was meant to be a one night gig only, but as it turned out, they all got such a kick out of what they did and decided to continue. A personal highlight was being the guest star with the Count Basie Orchestra during the Oslo Jazz Festival in 2019.
0: Ingar, I'm really curious about what it is about Frank Sinatra that draws you to his music. It's his voice.
2: It's his fantastic voice and his way of singing. He's uh, unprecedented. And he's like, he has become the original that everyone else have to live up to somehow. Yeah,
0: I heard someone describe him as not a musician but a musical stylist.
2: Yeah, you could say that. I mean, if you if you spend time studying him, um, there are there's so much work lying behind his performances. You know, this it it sounds very easy when he sings, and that's because it's very hard work lying behind it. It's like that with everything, isn't it? So, uh, and you probably know the story about how he, uh, he, s- he tried to emulate Tommy Dorsey. That was uh, one of the band leaders that took him in early in the forties. And he was a trombonist and he sort of tried to, to, to sing like the trombone. You know, how do you, how do you phrase the lyric to sound like a trombone? That was one thing. And the other was just physical technique that he, he wanted to be good at having enough air in his lungs that he could keep a, a sound going for a long time, which he learned from from Tommy Well,
0: I was thinking about his, um, you, you were talking about physical technique and you were talking about just yeah. how he sings physically, but also the way he moved when he sang was also well thought out and, and deliberate as well. I mean, he thought about all of it.
2: Yeah, yeah there was were, there were so much preparation going into it. Like, w- with all the people that, were, that are aces at what they do, you know, it, it goes so much work into it. And uh, for him, it was obvious that he, uh, he wanted to, you know, he, he put a lot of emphasis on how he told the story of a song. And he was mostly famous for, for recording of all the 3,500 songs he recorded or something. It would take more than a weekend to listen through it. <laughs> How did he tell that story? It was, it was a lot of ballads. You know, the majority of the songs he recorded were ballads. Uh, and then he, you ask yourself, you know, okay, why was he so good at singing ballads? And he's, he revealed that himself. He said, you know, these are sentimental songs. And the key is to sing them in a non-sentimental way.
0: That's interesting.
2: That is very interesting. So the next time you listen to a, to a ballad... By Sinatra, you can think about that, you know, that he, uh, he sings it in a non-sentimental way. And since the song and the lyric is so sentimental in its message, you know, it gets a double meaning or an emphasized meaning.
0: Do you remember the first time you heard him sing? Do you remember the first time you became aware of him?
2: That was through a friend of mine because uh, nobody at my household played Sa- uh, Frank Sinatra. He was not a popular figure when I grew up. Maybe not even for my parents, maybe for my grandparents. Anyway, I think the first time I heard it, it was probably My Way, uh, the Revo song, English lyric by Paul Anka. Uh, and so, oh yeah, and the uh, the super hits that he left behind, that was My Way, New York, New York and Strangers in the Night.
0: Did he grab you right away or was yeah. it more
2: gradual? More gradual. You know life is so full of uh, accidental things uh but my mother she picked up on that uh, that my friend and i that we we sort of like this kind of music and so when frank sinatra was coming to town which was not very often i live in norway he uh, he came along with a couple of friends L- lisa minnelli and sammy davis jr wow it was called uh, yeah it was a very and they called it the ultimate event. So that was a cool name for it. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they came uh, and, and my mother bought me tickets for this show. And so my friend and I, were, we went to this, uh, this show. It was in 16th of April, uh, 1989. So it was a few years back. Anyway, we're still going strong. And that experience was breathtaking to me. Because this, I mean, we're talking way before, uh, there were three channels on the TV. Uh, you had to buy records to listen to the music. You know, it, it was just very pre-smartphones, to put it there. <laughs> uh, very pre-Spotify. So it was not very accessible, this kind of thing. So when, we, when you went to a concert like that, and they toured with a huge band, with strings and everything, it was like a 50-man band nobody does that today because right. nobody can afford it and so it was sitting there and just remember the overture that they started playing the concert and it and that sound from that orchestra i'd never heard anything like it, it was so so breathtaking so beautiful and uh, you know these things are just incredibly much better live than on recordings as well and then they they, they, they went on the first guy out was sammy davis jr <laughs> And, you know, if you... Th- now, I know this is going to be about Frank Sinatra. But, right. But Sammy Davis Jr. is a completely different character. Uh, he has his his own style. And he is, uh, not to insult Frank Sinatra uh, fans, but he's much more musical. Uh, we must remember that Sammy Davis Jr. was also a very, very good drummer, actually. So he had a... Yeah. And his story is, is another one. But anyway, that was, you know you really felt that, okay, America is coming to visit, which was overwhelming. And then he, you know, sang some of the songs that I've heard before. And then he did also Mr. Bojangles, which was sort of like his, his, uh, his star act. And he also, you know, where he was standing with his hat. And I don't know if you have seen that, but it's just very breathtaking. It's it's just a, a great number. And he, uh, he also tap danced
0: for us. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to tap dance, but
2: <laughs> that is something that takes a while to get good.
0: I, as a kid even, I was fascinated with people that could tap dance. And, and watching Sammy Davis Jr. on TV tap dance was always yeah. amazing to me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Loved it. I can't dance. I can't do any kind of dance, uh, much well, less you tap. You but... can do the curious <laughs> So I'm really curious about, really yeah. curious about this because... First of all, I've never, I never got to see any of the Rat Pack live, um, which, which I really okay. wish I could have. But the idea of Ooh. Sammy Davis Jr. and Liza Minnelli and Frank Sinatra coming to Norway with a big orchestra, Oslo. to Oslo Ooh. with a big orchestra, and it had to be just a really powerful moment for the people in the audience to get to see that level of talent.
2: It must have been and of course for the for the, i was very young then. And, and so for, for the other ones who were there i think there were a lot of people who grew up with this music so they had like you know they, this was the, the one time in their life that they could actually experience the music they loved live yeah and so uh, my friend and i who, who were there i don't think we realized what a big moment this was really until you know, Sammy Davis Jr. was there and he did his act in the with the professionalism that only he had, and it was just like America is coming to town, and it was just really special. We've never seen or experienced anything like it, not on TV, even. And and then Liza Minnelli, who was, uh, you know, it was a bit too much screaming for my <laughs> taste, but anyway, <laughs> it's Liza Minnelli, right? Uh, and then I Really, uh, then something special happened. When, of course, it was um, because they did this in turns. First, Sammy Davis Jr., first, then Liza Minnelli, and then the stage was set for please welcome on stage Mr. Frank Sinatra. And everybody just stood up and started started to applaud. That was a strong moment. I'm sure and it was. A few seconds later, with you know the best timing in the world, the band starts to play, and he's like.
3: Come fly with me. Let's fly.
0: And then we, you were off. It was it was fantastic. I'm curious about the impression that those three left on you. And was that a moment? Did you come away from that concert thinking I want to do that? Now, well, maybe a little bit. It at least it was just I was just a kid,
2: so it was a uh, well, kid a kid. I was 19, I think. It it made a huge impression. So at least. You know, I have to find out more about this. I have to listen more to this music. and But it was very off, because nobody of my of my friends listened to it.
0: Yeah, there probably weren't a lot of teenagers running around no. Oslo, Norway, listening to Frank Sinatra. No,
2: it would be like the weird kids
0: who listen to that music. <laughs> you know? I'm fascinated uh, about the idea. So my kids, and especially my son, use... Spotify and YouTube and other online sources to discover music from around the world right yeah. I mean I think I think there was a point a couple of years ago, where my son decided to get into 1970s Nigerian jazz or something like that, okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> and and they have yeah. access and to you can and you can. That's right. That's exactly it. You have yeah. access to all this music. And when I when we were kids, because we were the same age, when we were kids, you didn't have access to music like that. Not at all.
2: What did I, you, I mean? If you were if you're a bit smart, maybe you had access to uh, a record uh, collection at your local library. Sure. Some libraries had a great collection of, but otherwise you usually have to buy the music and to buy a long play album, you know, it, it cost a lot of money. Yeah. And so so the accessibility is, of course, very interesting. I remember when I, in younger days, after just finishing college or university in Oslo, I, I got a job at the NRK, which is the, the, the state the, like the, the Norwegian BBC. And of course there, what did they have there? You know the biggest collection of records in the whole country so uh, and that gave me access to that so i listened to a lot of music when i got to to that place so uh, yeah that's the way it was really
0: i was always fascinated in and i i think I, I may have told this story on on the jenny grouse episode of the podcast but i was introduced to the band rem which became my favorite band yeah. Um, by a friend of mine, and I never knew how my friends got exposed to music like that, right? You're thinking mid-80s, yeah. small yeah. town, middle of nowhere, Minnesota, and how do you find REM there? But people were still discovering music and finding it and introducing it to their friends, and, yeah. and it was so much more of a face-to-face communal experience than sharing music is today. Definitely. Be- because you had to do it face-to-face. You couldn't send a Spotify playlist to someone.
2: That's a very interesting point, really. You know, uh, How do we consume music and what does it do for us? I can remember from growing up that, you know, uh, hanging around in, uh, well, uh, visiting each other and, and listening to records together. Yeah. It was like a, you know, that makes a big impact. And then you can discuss what you have listened to and stuff like that. And just uh, listen, that there's a certainly a, a very big difference.
0: Yeah, it really that
2: is. And, and, and listening to it by yourself. And, uh, and of course, the, uh, the, the overwhelming access that is now. I mean, every record, literally, is at your fingertips. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, uh, yeah, OK, you want to listen to uh, Fly Me to the Moon. OK, which version? Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's start with, you want a live or studio recording? We have them all. And it's just, it. the accessibility is, is great if you if you know how to use it. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's,
0: the first, it's a different world. The first time I experienced that, I, I was on a work trip a long time ago, probably 15 years ago, to Cleveland, Ohio, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is there. Mm. And I got into my hotel room, looked out the window of my hotel room, realized I was looking down on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was right across the street. I hadn't figured that out and I had a couple hours open, and so I thought, well, I'm just going to go do a really quick two-hour tour of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they had listening stations set up, and I got to the listening station, and I didn't know how to choose what to listen to, yeah. because you've got all the music from all the members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at your fingertips. Exactly. Yeah. And this was pre-Spotify and pre-online streaming, mm-hmm. and I'd yeah. never had that opportunity before to just say, yeah. what do I choose?
2: Exactly.
0: And it was, that moment was overwhelming. I think I'd handle it better today because I'm a little more used to it with with Spotify and streaming services. But it really is amazing. I guess
2: we we could be a bit grateful for for that Carter, that we have experienced a time where it took, you know, it took some effort to to access the music you were interested in listening to, evaluating. But now it is, uh, you know... you don't have that um, i don't know if you if you made uh, mixtapes when you were yeah. were younger you could spend like a whole day collecting uh, songs that you wanted to be on a mixtape and uh, you wanted to, oh well that is song number 1 and song number 2 has to be this it was it's like a project
0: and and the mixing of the tape was really important yeah. to me right i wanted the songs important. to flow together in the right order exactly. so Look at this. Yeah. We're, we're on Zoom and, and so we can see each other. People on the podcast can't see us, but I found a bunch of old cassettes in a box yeah. in the back of my storage closet the other day. I've got old mixtapes that I made <laughs> uh, years ago, still yeah. hanging around. So it'll be fun to just see what I did. <laughs>
2: It's probably the best selection ever, Carter.
0: Probably, probably, probably. <laughs> not. But that's all right. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. No, but but but, but um, you referred to your to your to your son that had you know that uses Spotify yeah and, uh, a lot and uh, and I I have to think that what a treasure that it is to have access to all this music uh, as long as you have the ability to actually study it a bit you know there, there's a difference between hearing and listening to music. then I say hearing music, is like what you hear in the background when you're in the mall, while listening to music is like, okay, I'm going to listen to this song and I'm going to listen to it. And maybe we do the latter not so often anymore. I don't know.
0: The flip side of that is is also that I get to listen to your music now, which for most of our lives, I wouldn't have been able to do, but you put something out online and I can hear it instantaneously. Yeah, that's amazing. Which has been really fun for me. Yeah. I'm yeah. well, glad to hear it. Do you have a favorite Frank Sinatra song?
2: No, I have several. But if I'm going to like, choose one of the more famous ones, it's, uh, it's the, the ones he, where he talks about the cycles of life. There is a song called Cycles, actually. And uh, the one you know that starts with, When I was 17, yeah. it
0: was a very good year.
2: It was a very good year. That's a very good song, I think.
0: Do you have different songs that you prefer to listen to and different songs you prefer to perform? Uh,
2: definitely. Because the latter, the, the one, it was a very good year. I think it, re- it requires an orchestra uh, to, to make it have the form. Uh, whereas the songs, well, I have a sextet. So we're only six people. That's only two horns, a trumpet and saxophone, and uh, uh, drums, bass, and uh, piano. And uh, it's called the Sinatra Songbook. And that is more... Then we choose songs that, you know, we can rearrange, that fits to our combo. Uh, and so we, we, would, we wouldn't pick, you know, My Way or New York, New York or The Ladies of Tramp. Yeah. Our project is very... Uh, you, you pick a name of an artist greater than yourself because then nobody then somebody will say oh it's that kind of music i haven't heard of ingar before i'm sure he's a nice guy but frank sinatra i've heard of him so it's something about that now so so we we choose songs that are applicable to our combo of musicians and uh, so and it's usually very quality music written by great composers like irving berlin hart and rogers Iron, George Gershwin, and so forth, uh, Cole Porter. And, you know, they, these guys, they, they wrote thousands of songs, and we get to cherry-pick the ones we like, and that we can do something with arrangement-wise mm-hmm. and to get them to, to to sound good with our ensemble. So it's definitely a different difference between what I like to listen to and what I would like to perform.
0: How much time do you put into choosing songs and rearranging songs to fit your combo compared to just rehearsing what's that balance look like
2: i don't know i'm also very i'm very caught up in the tradition of those songs yeah so it's not only frank sinatra i listen to i listen to a lot to american jazz uh and also bobby darren and Nat king cole and ella sure. fitzgerald billy Holiday, and all those the great ones and so i listen to it because that I, is something i also enjoy Whereas, you know, the rehearsal stuff is more a necessity.
0: Yeah, you got to do
2: it. <laughs> you need to do, uh, which is also great, you know. Um, but it's, it's the performing that I get a kick out of.
0: How much time do you spend thinking about the phrasing? Because you're a singer. And, yeah. and Frank Sinatra was very particular in his phrasing. Mm. It's fascinating for me to listen to you do a song and then listen to Frank do, a so- do the same song right after. Uh and to see where your phrasing is different do you think about that at all or is that just something that comes out naturally
2: um i don't know it's it's not he's he's like the great master and you have to sort of pick up on what he pointed out as important things when it comes to to phrasing and the one thing that he was very particular about was that you need to sing in a way that the audience hear every word you can hear every word so I, i put a i put a lot of Time into that. Okay. And to, to record and, and hear back, and to play back and say, okay, can you hear what I'm singing? Can you, can you hear every word I'm singing? Yeah, so, I, so I've, I've spent quite some time on that.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Mm. Frank was an actor too. Did that help yeah. draw you into? becoming a Frank Sinatra fan?
2: I'm not sure. I I haven't seen that many movies that he made. Okay. I know that he participated in like 60 movies. His career is crazy. Imagine just just the time spending in a studio, Carter. Three and a half thousand songs recorded and 60 movies. I mean, how does it get in time to stay in California? Yeah, I
0: don't know. What's interesting to me about it is that his career kind of hit big and then, from kind of the end of World War II to sometime in the early '50s, it had a lull in his career, yeah. and he he lost his recording contracts, and it I was actually period. yeah, and it was actually the acting that helped him Ooh. get back on the stage in front of people, and and helped him pick up some some recording contracts, and I've I've wondered what how he viewed that, trans- that that time and that transition time.
2: I think he was a very desperate man. And, well, it's interesting to look back at, you know, the, the conditions that he came out of. Hoboken, New Jersey. It was a poor neighborhood. I mean, his father was a fireman. They had an income. His father, his mother was a housewife, I think. And, you know, it's just, it's just like, you wonder, how come these guys like Sammy Davis Jr., Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, why are they so good? You know, at what they're doing, and a friend told me that they're singing for their lives, they're performing for their lives, because that's all they knew. That was their talent. That was what they had to grab, because they they came from nothing, and they made it, and with a great price. I mean, uh, along the way, uh, the story of Frank Sinatra's life is is very intriguing. I don't think it was an easy life. Because he was so hard on himself, and you know, being being so good in such a competitive environment, he, it's it's. I don't think he was nice to everyone.
0: I think that's probably true.
2: <laughs> Someone was left behind, and uh, but I, I think in when, when he he became a big star again back in the sixties, and he was very generous, you know, and uh, what he did for Sammy Davis Jr. will will always be there as a as a token of his true values, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. What's it mean to you to get to perform these songs? To me, it
2: gives me great joy because it's, it's great pieces of music and uh, they're different every time we perform them because that's the, the joy thing of, uh, of live performance. No, it's, it's just... Uh, it also gives me... I don't know if it's the right thing to, to compare, but we'll, like if you're an opera singer, you will always have to look up to Caruso and Pavarotti, right? Maybe Jussi Björling also, if there's any Swedish listeners with us. And uh, and I think it's the same with this. When you, when you perform this kind of music, which is like the American songbook, you have to look up to the stars, which are Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, maybe soon Tony Bennett, and Frank Sinatra, of course, Bobby Darin. It's, it's, you, you do it with 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 a respect and 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 sort of like okay, this is a tradition worth bringing to new audiences. And it is the special thing about this music that it is the, music is at its best performed live. And those other guys, they are not here anymore. But there are others that can sort of perform it at least in the spirit of what it was back in the day and good. Quality music, like it's written by Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, and the other guys, it deserves to live on. It's like Mozart.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about your role in helping the music live on and that sense of a musical journey for the song, for the writers. And one of the things I I find really fun to do is to listen to original versions and then listen to your version and then find someone else singing a Sinatra song and listen to their version and to see that interpretation and to see how each individual puts their spin on that classic old song. And it's that moment where music kind of helps draw a connection between people and draw a connection between people that's not just you and me, but a connection back to another era as well.
2: Right. And to be honest, I mean, uh, lyric-wise, very few of these songs have any you know, contemporary meaning to us now, but I mean, it's, but there, a lot of them are uh, love songs, you know, it's about longing and disappointment, you know, how to mend things that hasn't gone that well. And this next song is about, you know, they believe in love where the guy perhaps believes a bit more than she does <laughs> and, you know, goes on like sure. that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah.
0: You do some Really interesting gigs around Norway every year. I think um, there's like you've, you've yeah. been to the concert house a few times. Do you have a dream gig? If you could if you could do a dream gig with a the Sinatra game. songbook, what what would that look like? I think it would be
2: great to go to Italy actually, because they love Sinatra down there and Dean Martin and you know the Rat Pack yeah. uh, tradition and Italians uh, they you know they they just love music so much and. So I think it would be cool to, like, uh, be at uh, at these uh, square concerts, piazza concertos that they have in the summer, That uh, the one that uh, Pavarotti started, for instance. Um, that would be cool to play in, in, in Italy. Yeah, no, and of course, come to the United States. I mean, who wouldn't like to go to New York and, you know, try it? Right. At Birdland or, yeah. you know, at the Blue Note.
0: Yeah, the Blue Note would be fun. Yeah. How important is it to you to get to do this live and to, and to be able to interact with the crowd while you're doing it?
2: Uh, that's the Alpha Omega, actually. So we're kind of a band, just to take a small sidestep, that also are invited to do do shows for, for private things, you know, like a business, uh, IBM yearly conference, and wouldn't you like to come and play after dinner? And nobody's listening. The money is good. <laughs> but no one is listening. <laughs> right. I would rather go to a jazz club, you know, where there are a hundred people. They have paid their their hard earned money to come and listen to us, and we give them our best show. And since you ask why I like the the, the, the live performance of it, this you know, this is because uh, I'm just referring to uh, the late great David Bowie, who said there are things that happen at a live performance. It's me as a performer, and I give it everything I can, and you as an audience, you respond to what I'm doing. And in between us, there, there's this ball of energy that is appearing, and it takes all of us to do this, and that's the magic.
0: Yeah, I think people who have been on a stage and have performed on a stage very much understand that that moment can be so powerful and it can be just as awful when that moment doesn't, doesn't happen at all. Oh boy. Oh boy.
2: Yeah. It's like, uh, well, I think Frank Sinatra said, you know, remember two things, know your audience. Timing is everything. Absolutely. (laughs) And I think you can translate that to many parts of life actually. So (laughs) know your audience. That's a good one. So and it, and it it's very interesting because when when you come to perform somewhere where you haven't performed before it takes a couple of tunes before you're like okay where where is this going with this audience are they with us or you know are they enjoying themselves cuz some places you can go and people are very reserved they're loving it you know they're like sparkling inside but I can't see it from stage and it's like, oh, my God, we just have to work harder, guys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh, it's not good enough. You know, we were just, okay, let's get this together. This next song, we got to nail this next song, you know, get nervous and stuff.
0: Does it feel better for you? Does it, that moment where you've got the connection, where that, that energy is happening and that connection is there, does that feel better for you or... When you can't get that connection to happen, does that feel worse? Which is which is a more profound feeling for you?
2: I think, like uh, in other areas of life, where you have to work for it, yeah, the reward is greater. I mean, when when you get on stage and people are with you from song number one, it's yeah. just you know, it's it's just a it's a great trip because at least we we're a very uh, outward going band. And my job is to connect with the audience and have a dialogue with the audience. So I tell stories about, you know, my life and my connection to this music and why we're here. And, you know, it's, it's like you have an intro to a song. So I don't know how it is with you guys, but my experience is that life goes up and down. How's it with your, madam? Yeah, I know the feeling. This next song is about blah, blah, blah. So, so to, to like to bind it together, so it's it's like a... It's important to to sort of statuate that, you know, the audience here is part of the show, you know, no audience, no show. And um, at least that's very gratifying for for the kind of uh, genre we are doing with my band, the Sinatra Songbook whereas others, you know, very serious, I call them very serious, uh, more modern uh, jazz musicians, it sounds like they're, they're playing the music on stage exactly as you can hear it on a record, and they don't interact very much. Yeah. They don't s- talk to the audience. It's like, all right, I got to hear it live. I can hear that they can actually play it great, but it's more fun with Chick I,
0: I I've had that experience at concerts where, where you're sitting in the audience, and, and it's great, and the music is all really well done. Yeah, yeah. But you really wonder if they aren't just up there lip syncing. <laughs> I mean, because it's so canned, right? It's, yeah, yeah. And it's so tight. Right. And and the great thing about live music is when it is when there's an improv when people are improvising a little bit or when people are interacting with the audience a little bit and you and you get that connection that mm. makes you know that it's live and that it's happening yeah, yeah. for them that they're creating yeah. something on stage,
2: right. And you know who is the best at connecting with his audience? That's Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, and he goes on for four hours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's, you know, if you, if you're a performer and you, you want to do something in front of a front of an audience, you you know, look at the look at the success guys. You know, what are they doing?
0: I haven't. By the way, I haven't listened to it yet. But evidently, Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama have a podcast together. Yes. Have you I heard it? I haven't
2: it yet either. No, no I just, haven't heard just, it. Just uh, a just a trailer of it. Yeah, and uh, they're just just like <laughs> uh, like brothers.
0: You've mentioned a lot of other influences, um, along with Frank Sinatra, that that have gone into you, you know, creating this Sinatra Songbook Band and in doing the work that you're doing. I'm curious who, if there are contemporary artists that you're also connecting with and listening to and drawn to?
2: There definitely are a lot of contemporary artists that I'm uh, uh, inspired by and that I look up to. And that is, uh, well, top of my head, The Weekend is great. Jason Mraz, I like. Do they uh,
0: influence, does listening to them influence how you approach the Sinatra songbook? Or is it just for fun?
2: Oh no, not very much. Yeah. But, you know, they, they're they're very inspiring in the way that they, you know, how they own their music. I listen to a lot of hip hop too. Do you really? Yeah. Well, that's it's it's sort of old a lot of Dr. Dre and stuff.
0: Okay. All right.
2: But uh, but that's more for uh, some of those some rappers are, are you know they just have an incredible timing or how to deliver the lyric. And that's very fascinating. Not that I not it's not that I can, you know, uh, use that directly the way uh, a Sinatra song is sung, but but still, you know, how do you attack the lyric? How do you how do you how do you present the lyric? And the timing is fantastic. And Eminem,
0: my God, it's interesting that you say that because you listened to interviews with Sinatra and he talked about that timing and that precision mm. and the need to be able to attack the lyric in that same way. Actually,
2: yeah, yes, definitely. Oh, and I also listened to a lot of classical music, but that doesn't sort of, it's more about harmonies and stuff in in the way we arrange our tunes, that I can say that, uh, what if we go more in that direction, or at least so I can have references to the ones who arrange the music in our band.
0: When I listen to jazz, I either listen to Kuvo, which is the jazz station here in Denver where I live, K-U-V-O. I listen to TSF jazz, which is out of Paris. Mm. I listen to NRK jazz out of Oslo. Yeah, and and I spent a lot of time listening to those three stations, and my son Ramsey can, just by listening to the music, can tell you which station I'm listening to. Oh. He can walk in the room, hear the song, uh, yeah, that's, that's NRK, yeah, that's TSF, yeah, yeah that's Kuvo. But I like it because it, it gives me exposure. I'm not necessarily picking the songs. I'm letting someone else pick the songs for me, and... Hopefully, discovering something interesting that I may not have heard before. Hmm. Do you spend time listening to music like that, or is it mostly you selecting what you want to listen to?
2: Well, if I'm out driving and I'm usually driving a lot, uh, then I, 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 I sometimes listen to to jazz channels. Sure. Just let them pick the music. Yeah. Oh, that was cool, or that was not so cool. No, so I. But how much time I spend on it, I'm not sure. Uh, but but usually when I, when I'm out driving, I I listen to news at every hour. At the top of every hour. <laughs> and then I usually listen to maybe some podcast or, or jazz.
0: My Norwegian, I've studied a little Norwegian. My Norwegian is not that good. I pick up a few <laughs> words when I listen to NRK Jazz, and they do the news at the I top know. of every hour. Uh, I, I listen to the news in Norway, in Norwegian, and I'll pick up <laughs> words, but not enough to really understand what's going on. No? No, okay. it's not there. Yeah. Unfortunately... But there
2: are not many jazz channels where they actually talk about jazz. So it's usually they just play the music and it's okay. It's an interesting selection, but nobody's like talking.
0: anymore. Yeah. There's actually Uh, to that point, and this is not meant to be a plug for Kuvo, but it is KUVO jazz in Denver. Every morning they have a short 10 minute show called stories of standards uh where they pick an old standard, an old song Right. And they tell the story of it, yeah. And it's and you can look it up online um, on on the KUVO website, but it's it's a great little series of just every day a ten minute snippet of a story behind a song or behind an mm. artist uh, that that I appreciate getting to hear.
2: A lot of songs have a story and how they came about, and some of them are about real people, and it's also well since we're the kind of uh, shows that we have where we interact with the audience, talk to the audience, it's, uh, uh, I usually talk shortly about, you know, who wrote the songs and uh, under what circumstance, if it's appropriate. And it's also in the sense of, since I know um, a lot of people come to listen to Sinatra music, not necessarily Ingar Christen's <laughs> music <singing> Sinatra music, <laughs> but I'm the guy doing it. So we're stuck with each other. Anyway, so then I could say something about the story why Sinatra picked that song and what it has meant to him, and and very often it, it's uh, sort of a, a, a story that applies to everyone.
0: Well, what's next for the Sinatra songbook?
2: We're doing our normal jazz club concerts in the spring, and then uh, doing a couple of festivals in the
0: summer, and uh, and so it goes. Any chance uh, to get back in the recording studio again?
2: Well, we, re- we released a record uh, a couple of years ago now, so, uh, you know... It, it, it's, it's a way for us to, to be actual. <laughs> that, that's why we go to the studio now. Because sure. if you release an album, you can say to everyone, we released an album. But the thing is, in our Spotify days, you know, it's, uh, it's Rihanna that makes the dough.
0: <laughs> we don't. Right. Even and it costs money to here. record an album. That it,
2: that it does. But it's, it's like an expensive uh, business card. But uh, it's, it's good from, for several reasons. One is that it's very good for the band because it brings the band together when you have to record an album. Because yeah. you have to, a lot of thought goes into an album. The song selection, why are we doing this? Where are we? Where are we going? Things like that. And also so that we, we, we have something new to present to the bookies.
0: Well, I've enjoyed your music. Uh, since I met you and, and I always, uh, look forward to anything you put out on Spotify or when something shows up on YouTube. I think I may have told you this, but my ringtone is your version of the way you look tonight. Um, which my wife Kelly has now adopted as her ringtone as well. (laughs) The first, I don't know how many bars of that song, you get that trumpet hit at the beginning. Okay. Uh, and then you, you come in with a someday and it is the perfect <laughs> ring It is, it I works see. really well. Uh, so, so I also appreciate it when people call me <laughs> yeah. because I get to hear your voice. Yeah. Uh, every time I get a phone call, it's, yeah. it's good to be your friend and it's good to be a fan. Thanks man. Thank you very much My for voice. doing this.
2: No problem.
1: considering that this was not my genre of music, this was a great conversation. Again, all the elements of how music travels and how people are affected by different kinds of music in different in, in different locales. I'd never heard of this band, but certainly um, as a result of this conversation, I'm going to be looking out to experience more of, of this Sinatra songbook band.
0: It's really interesting. I met Ingar in the summer of 1989, After shortly after he had seen this concert, and his love of Sinatra is foundational to my memories of him. I remember goofing around and singing New York, New York with him and and things like that. And and it certainly was an experience that moved him and certainly gave him a path in life that has been interesting and fulfilling for him. And how did you meet Inga? Was he in the U.S.? Yeah, we traveled together in a student group for a while and um, and met him that way. And I think the world of him, he's one of one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, just lovely, lovely, lovely guy. Uh, and I wish that I could sing half as well as he could. Uh, <laughs> I've got no musical talent at all. But it's such a joy to get to listen to him sing.
1: He does have a phenomenal voice. And, you know, the way he talks about performing the Sinatra songs, something that kept coming through. He said, you know, you have to do it with respect. You asked him about live performances versus just singing, doing recordings. And he said, you know, that this is a a tradition that's worth bringing to new audiences. And you could really tell that this is a real passion for this guy. And the fact that he's even able to carry, you know, to pull it off—it's one thing to to love Sinatra and to love Sinatra's music, and it's quite another to be able to pull off performing like Sinatra. So that was really interesting to listen to.
0: I think one of the things about Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. is that they were all wonderful singers uh, and had amazing voices, but they were also all such performers and put on such a show. When they performed, it wasn't just the music. They made sure that they engaged the audience and that what they brought to the audience was really a completely entertaining performance, even beyond the music. You know, I never got to see any of them live in concert. That would have been amazing. But to watch the old videos on YouTube and the old TV specials on YouTube is is just a lot of fun to see
1: i also loved uh you asked him the question about his dream gig as it were and i was actually listening and i wrote down vegas i was so sure he would say vegas. <laughs> um that his response was i'm uh, putting on a show in a piazza in italy somewhere and i thought that that came from nowhere, but I can imagine having been to performances in piazzas in around Italy. I would imagine how that would that would have been interesting. But I did fully expect him to say Las Vegas, and he didn't. I thought he would say Vegas
0: or maybe Madison Square Garden in New York. And when he didn't, I thought, well, I wonder if that's just my American centric <laughs> attitude and view of the world. Uh, but I loved that answer of a piazza in in Italy. And loved the idea of of doing that kind of a show there. And I think, what a wonderful place to do this kind of music. i I'd love to see him do a show there. That would be a lot of fun.
1: What's my next question? Do they so I guess they tour?
0: They do they do tour mostly around Norway. They're, you know, it's a part-time gig. It's a side gig. And so they have full-time jobs and they're doing other stuff. And so there's not a lot of time to pick up and travel, but they do gigs around Norway, especially in the summer when it's kind of jazz festival season and that kind of thing. But they they do have some performances year-round. It's been a little tougher, you know, with the pandemic to actually do gigs because we haven't had live music as much as we've had in the past, but they stay fairly busy traveling around Norway.
1: So maybe we should plan a a trip.
0: Oh, I'd love it. I'll tell you the last time I was in Norway, it's been quite a while now. um, But the last time I was in Norway, I called him and I said, Hey, we're, my my wife Kelly and I are going to be uh, coming to visit and we're going to arrive in Oslo on, on this date. And he said, He said, I won't be home that night. But he said, if you turn on the TV, he said, it's the Norwegian version of of either the Emmys or the Oscars, right? Something, one of those awards, the Norwegian version of that. He said, I'm going to be performing. And I thought, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. And so (laughs) my wife and I got to Oslo. We had been up north of the Arctic Circle in Norway, and we made our way down the coast, and we got to Oslo. And we checked into our hotel. We got some food to eat. And then we turned on the TV. And I speak a few words of Norwegian. I don't speak more than a few words of Norwegian. My wife doesn't speak any Norwegian. And we watched the entire... Award ceremony. And the final musical act was was Ingar and, and one of his best friends from childhood singing Me and My Shadow before they announced Best Picture or, or Best TV Show or whatever the whatever the award was. And it was so much fun to see and to see him perform on national TV in Norway.
1: said something, about I think it asked him how important it is to do live performances in front of a crowd. And I think the phrase he used was, I mean, that's the alpha and omega of, of performing. What I was interesting was his comparisons to I think he talked about David Bowie and Bruce Springsteen and you had said to him I mean you asked him who else his influences were and it was interesting he talked about these sort of great entertainers great performers but he said that watching them didn't influence the way he did his Sinatra performances which I thought was really interesting.
0: So I'm curious Adobe if growing up how aware you were of some of this music
1: so even though it's not my favorite genre of music i was very aware of that music because my parents lived in in the u.s in the 60s new york new york doing it my way was actually one of my father's favorite songs in fact um we you know we talked about after my father was buried uh, we played doing it his way you know sort of like a uh, it was an ode to you know his, his you know Sinatra and, and and the fact that my father appreciated that kind of music. So I was very much aware of, um, of that genre of music, but it just, just it wasn't something that it wasn't my favorite. I I didn't dislike it, but
0: it just wasn't my cup of tea. I'm curious. This is a complete tangent, but uh, thinking about your father for a minute, and your father was very important to you, and and when he passed away. Was it two years ago, I think?
1: 2020.
0: 2020. Yeah, so two years ago. I watched his funeral online and I was always curious after the funeral, was there, was there, a, what's the tradition? Was there a reception? Was there a meal? What, what was the tradition after that?
1: So, so in my, my, in our culture, you get buried on your property. So my father built, Um, a huge country house. And the plan was always that him and my mother would be buried on the premises. Now, because it was COVID, we didn't have a big, and my father was also a titled man, he was a chief. Um, So because of the COVID protocols and restrictions, we were very clear that we weren't going to have the big sort of jamboree that his funeral would have been. Going back to his way, um, knowing how proper he was and how um, averse he was to breaking protocols. So we didn't do any of the sort of big celebrations that would have happened right after his funeral. But at his one-year memorial, we went to Mass because we're Catholic. And after, we did have a small reception at his house, still under COVID protocol. And we had a saxophone player who actually played a number of Sinatra songs, including Doing It My Way.
0: It was really interesting for me to, to watch his funeral online. You and I hadn't talked Prior to that, so I didn't really know what to expect, but there was, there was music, and there was it was fascinating to watch that, and and we haven't ever talked about it, but I was I was curious just even about kind of the days around that funeral and all of the work that went into planning that and the grieving process that you went through, and I think. Uh, I appreciate getting to get a glimpse into your world at that point.
1: I, my world is very eclectic. So in some ways, I am very traditional. You know, my father is a titled man and a chief from a pretty important village in the Niger Delta. Uh, but I'm also American-born. I was also raised in Europe. My parents were very Western in a lot of ways. But somehow, um, my my life, my childhood, my adulthood is a real sort of amalgamation of different cultures. And, you know, we're Catholic, for example. So my father's funeral had to be a Catholic funeral. But you also had to fuse a lot of the traditional sort of the village rituals that went with the burial of a titled man, for example. So, yeah, and, and I think that's sort of the story of my life. I'm a mixed breed of, of, of experiences and, and cultures and, and influences.
0: And it makes the song My Way even more appropriate. It does well. I, I like I said. I think the world of Engar. I, I love listening to him perform. I'm also a fan of jazz. My my son plays jazz, plays the trumpet, and and I listen to a lot of jazz. Uh, and one of my favorite jazz radio stations is NRK Jazz. The Norwegian uh, National Radio Network is NRK, and and they have a jazz 24 seven jazz channel. And I I will sometimes turn on NRK Jazz and occasionally as i've got that playing in the background they'll play a song from the sinatra songbook and it's so much fun to get to hear
1: well i really have added this to my bucket list i would love to get back to Norway. i've been a few times i spent time in oslo and stavanger when i lived um, in europe but you and i should really make a plan
0: let's do it i'm in (laughs) i'm in we're we've got a we've got a trip family a big family trip planned For 2022 to uh, to Europe, as long as the pandemic lets us do it, uh, we're not going to get to Norway on that trip. But maybe maybe 2023, you and I and Kelly and and our families can meet up in Norway. Awesome. Spontaneity is the spice of life. That would be a lot of fun. All right, Adobe, thank you. This has been fun. Thank you, Carter. As promised before we go, some original music from Ingar and the Sinatra songbook. This one is called Hanging On to a Lover's Dream. On the key and the kite.
3: Your almond-shaped eyes, so beautiful to see. The scent that you carry cast a spell over me. The softness in your voice impossible to hate why put on a plate dear it's already getting late I'd love to have at hand your compliment of joy if only you would trust me I will not be too coy I'll always be there for you just how long can it take to sort through all the true and get rid of all the fake. When our push comes to show, I must leave it up to you. afraid of anything in this world with you there right beside me i just can't get hurt you are my protector nothing can harm me hanging on to a lover's dream just can't let it be afraid of anything in this world with you there right beside me i just can't get hurt you are my protector nothing can harm me hanging on to a lover's dream hanging on to a lover's dream
1: Kite Podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. Our social media manager is Laurel Hedrick. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Key and Kite Pod. Music for The Key and The Kite is written and performed by the A.V. Grouse Band. Their first album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Their new album, Telltale Heart, debuted at number 7 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Learn more at avgrouseband.com. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Please join us again in two weeks.